Go ahead and take your Bible and let's go to Romans chapter 9. We have worked our way uh, as of last week. Uh, I don't know how many of you um, heard it, and I don't even know how many of you got it. I mean that two ways. You can hear it and not get it. But since I couldn't see you, I couldn't tell. So hopefully uh, you heard it and you got it last, uh, last week as we went through from verse 6 to verse number 13. Tonight we are not getting near that far along uh, in, in verses because of a well business meeting at the very end uh, that won't, won't take too terribly long. We don't have a lot there, um, but we need to give time for that. And, uh, and I've got several things I want to cover and Y'all be ready because I'm going to get you to turn with me to a couple of different, um, uh, different areas in the Bible as we look at some of these thoughts. We're going to hopefully do three verses tonight, and that would be the three verses that, that I would frame within uh, the, the understanding of being the key verses of this chapter. We have reached verse number 14 now, and we're just going to do 14, 15, and 16 as, uh, as we begin, we, we've already looked at and said that, you know, as a whole, Romans chapter 9, ultimately uh, in a theme of the chapter would be dealing with God's righteous sovereignty. He is a sovereign God. He has the right in his sovereignty to do that which he wills. And, uh, and, and some of that is dealt with here. And may I say chapter, uh, chapter 9 of Romans is also misused. Uh, by, by some to teach some errant doctrines, uh, things such as God predetermines who, who will be saved and who will not be saved. God predetermines who he likes enough to give salvation to and who he doesn't like and therefore he won't give you salvation. They take what, some, of the, some of what we're going to see uh, even tonight and, uh, and they, they twist it to believing, may I say, it's not as much a twisting as it is reading without actually getting below the surface of what you read. That, that's the whole problem. Most of the time, uh, a, an idea of contradiction in the Bible is not a contradiction in the Bible. It's a lack of uh, willful study by the individual who's reading. Um, and, and the idea of misunderstanding what the Bible's saying is not truly the fact that the Bible is hard to understand. It's more the fact that the individual just wants to read on the surface and for everything to be, you know, um, Bible for dummies kind of scenario. And, uh, and I, may I say, there's, there's plenty, I guarantee you somewhere out there, somebody has written a book, The Bible for Dummies. Go find it. It's somewhere. Go find a, if you still have them, go find a books a million. I guarantee you, you'll probably find one of them. But um, as a whole, misunderstandings, misinterpretations, um, perceived contradictions in God's word can come down to a fact that an individual does not study the, the essence of the purpose of what's being said, the context of the scripture of that time, and not looking at who is being talked to in scripture at that time, and then also just wanting to surface read and not get down to what is being truly taught. And that's where chapter 9 gets, uh, gets fixed in the eyes of men and in the ears and minds of men 
um, when you actually begin to dig a little bit and understand what is being talked about, who is being talked to, and what is being taught as a whole by Paul. And so God's sovereign, righteous sovereignty is being presented. Uh, verse 14 through verse 16, which is our verses for tonight, are what, what, what I would call the key verses of understanding the basis of the entire chapter. Uh, those three verses say this, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. All right, so it's the essence of understanding that it is of God that mercy is received. It is of God that grace is given. It is of God that salvation, again, get back to the whole point of what Paul is really getting to. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of, I'm a Jew. Okay. But I have the promise we dealt with that last Wednesday. The understanding of the promise was not a promise that you are a child of God, born a Jew, you're automatically a spiritual child of God for eternity. That is not the promise. Well, God said that we were his people and he would not cast us off. No, no, it was a different promise. The promise is not likened unto eternity. The promise to the Jew, the promise to Israel was likened unto the promise that God would make of Abraham a great nation through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. Not just of the seed of Abraham, but of the specific seed of Abraham that would come between Abraham and Sarah. That was Isaac, not Ishmael. Therefore, just because some say, well, we're of Abraham as well, doesn't matter. The promise was through the lineage of Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. Not even Abraham and Isaac to Esau. God desired, he knew who he was going to choose. He knew who he was going to use. He knew beforehand the older would serve the younger. God had already planned that which was his perfect will. And the promise was not a promise that Israelites were spiritually, eternally children of God. It was a promise that they were going to be a great nation that would never, ever be wiped off the face of the earth by mankind. Only God himself could remove them. And he promised, though they, they might go through problems, that he would protect he also promised blessings, but his blessings came with obedience. His protection was a promise that never ended. You say, how do you know God kept his promise? Because the nation of Israel still exists no matter how many people have tried to destroy it. No matter how many millions have been slaughtered, the nation of Israel still exists. They actually now have been reformed as prophesied. They have a home place as prophesied. And they're going to be in the central setting of end time events as prophesied. Because they are still a people. And they are still God's people, but not the spiritual people that Paul's trying to deal with. 
So the promise is not a promise of spiritual eternity. The promise is you are a nation protected by God in this life. He's made a great nation through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and on through Jacob. Now, slight rehearse of last week there, but all of that is to understand that God is sovereign, that God has the right to declare his will perfect and unchangeable. That he will determine what is going to be done and his will is going to be performed. Now, here's the thing that I'm not going to get deep into tonight, but you just have to understand God has not removed man's will, ability to make choice. We are not robots. But God has already, in his foreknowledge, has already preordained certain aspects of this life. And he's already, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but he's already preordained the answer for eternity in his perfect will. And he preordained the answer for eternity in his son being born. And he already knew the, the person he was going to build a nation of. He already knew of the lineage and seed, of the line that he was going to go through. And he knew exactly who he was going to put in that line to bring about the birth of his son that would be the savior of the world. He already knew it all. He formed it all. He willed it all. And he made it happen. No matter what man tried to interfere with or what man tried to do to help God out, God didn't need any help. He, his uh, choice and his ability to lead this, he is sovereign. Therefore, he has the right to do that which he wills and knows is best. So as we look at these, these verses here, uh, we, we've already gone through ver verse 1 through verse number 5, presents through the chapter there, presents the brokenheartedness that Paul has for the lost of Israel, the ones who don't know Christ as their Savior, the ones who've rejected Christ because they think that being of Israel gives them all they need. He's brokenhearted over them. And then he explains the true meaning of the intention of the promise, which we talked about last week. I mentioned some of that already. Now we come to the third area here, um, the third sectioning of this chapter, where he begins to, uh, and this is a long one if you're writing it down, all right? The third area is the assertion and proof of the absolute sovereignty of God in his dealings with the children of men. All right? So Paul asserts or Paul promotes and, and points out and proves the absolute sovereignty of God in his dealings with the children of men. Uh, this is, uh, technically, this goes all the way through verse number 24. We're not getting that far tonight. Let's hope we can get to verse 16. So, very quickly, the great question is presented in verse number 14, and that is this, because he's already said in verse number 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, here's what some would say. Oh, hold on a second. So, God, before it even happened, God already hated Esau. Let, let's look at this for a moment, just real quick. Think about it. Paul is talking to those of the house of Israel long after 
the whole Jacob and Esau scenario. And the statement he's making in verse number 13 about what God has spoken, it was what was spoken concerning those that were already known to be in existence. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Did God love one man and hate another man? No, I'm going to show you in a minute. God loved the heart and intention, though Jacob was initially a supplanter. That's what his his name means, the deceiver. (laughs) But Jacob was one that God loved because God knew where Jacob was going to go. God knew his intent, what he desired for Jacob. Jacob had loved, and God knew the heart of Esau. God knew the, the, the direction of Esau. God knew what Esau had done. God knew what Esau was going to continue to do. And what God said is, Jacob, in, in who he is, and what he is doing. By the way, Jacob was the one that wrestled with God and said, I'm not letting go until, until you promise to go with me, until you promise to be with me. God understands the heart and intent of the one that was Jacob called Israel. Name was changed to Israel. And then God also knew the heart and the intent of a man named Esau and what would come from the lineage of Esau. May I say, God did not love Jacob and hate Esau as men. God loved the heart and desire of Jacob over the heart and desire of Esau. God loves mankind. God hates sin. God, by the way, when the Bible says uh, that for God so loved the world, it did not mean for God so loved the entire world, but he hated Esau. It still applies. For God so loved the world. His love did not start at the New Testament. When did God start loving the world? Well, when he sent his only begotten son. No, he already loved mankind. He loved his creation. God already loved the world, which is why I'm getting ahead of myself, which is why he already before ordained that his son would be as a lamb slain before the foundation. Got ahead of myself. Look at this. All right. So here's the thing. The question is, because, well, God loves, as, as it is said, uh, as God himself spoke, it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. It, so he comes in, verse number 14, what shall we say then? Because he knew what they were thinking. Paul knew exactly what they were thinking. He's presenting truth, and he knew exactly how they were going to twist it. Well, if that's what God does, if that's the way he treats us, then God's not nearly as perfect as we thought he was. Look how unfair he is. What chance did Esau have? God hated him. No, God hated what was produced in the life of Esau. Now watch. It goes through and he says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? There is your great question. And he answers it emphatically right away with God forbid. Here he's just saying, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that because of what is written that you just kind of want to push aside. But because I'm bringing up what is written, you're thinking that God all of a sudden is somehow not righteous. 
There's some imperfection in, in the way God thinks. There's some injustice in the way God acts. He said, God forbid. How could you even think that way? Uh, you, you look back and, 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 he, and he kind of focuses in and, and he brings up kind of that, and then that God forbid brings up that, that entire understanding of, of Genesis 18, 25, where it talks about shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Uh, Genesis 18, 25 says that be far from thee to do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be, that be far from thee shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Then Romans 3, Paul has already spoken in Romans 3. We've already dealt with this one, but it's going to rehearse it. Romans 3, 5, and 6. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? He said, I speak as a man, talking like a man. Would God be unrighteous to bring about vengeance on mankind? But he goes on and says, God forbid, even in, in verse number six of Romans three, God forbid for then how shall God judge the world? If God's judgment ends up being declared unrighteous, then how could he be a righteous judge? You'd remove his ability to judge mankind, which is not man's right to do. And so he ends that question. Don't even think about the fact, well, well that does, that's just not fair. God's picking and choosing who he likes and doesn't like. God, God must not be very righteous. He must not be as holy as we think he is. And Paul says, shame on you. How dare that, even, that thought even come to mind. God forbid that we even think that towards a holy God. Then he goes on from the great question. And he, he deals with God's sovereignty in his choices. And this is as far as we're going to get. But there's enough right here, so hold on. So verse 15 and verse number 16, he begins to deal with and look at God's sovereignty in his choices that he makes. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So he's trying to initiate a couple of things here in the minds and the hearts of the Israelite people, the Jewish people that he's talking to. Number one, it's not what you can do for yourself. It's not what you want for yourself that makes a difference. Number two, he also begins to, in this chapter, deal with the balance between the Gentile who's accepted and the Jew who's rejected. And he's trying to qualify and get in their minds to understand it's not of you to will it or to run for it. And it's not of them to will it or to run for it. It is all of God. Because he is sovereign. His way is perfect. He's already pre-described and pre-prescribed uh, pre <laughs> for man how it's to be done and what we are to do. How do we find the favor of God in the sense of eternity? How do we understand or how do we even have a hope of receiving mercy and grace? God has already prescribed it. And his will is perfect. His way is perfect. And man has no business trying to tell God he's wrong in the choice that he has already pre-made. 
So God's sovereignty in his choices. And let me give you these real quick. Uh, Here's just some thoughts to understand in God's sovereignty of his choices when looking at verse 15 and 16. It is of God to decide who receives mercy and compassion. It's not of man and our qualifying of whether or not that's fair. It is of God to decide who receives mercy and compassion. He will give mercy to whom he'll give mercy. He'll have compassion on whom he will have compassion. Well, how does God make his choice? It's just like a flippant choice. He flip a coin and say, let me see. Am I going to have mercy? Nope, I don't will it. No mercy for you. Is that how God chooses mercy? Is that how God chooses compassion? Is that how he determines his will? No. His will has been very clearly and his way has been very clearly laid out in his word. He's already predetermined how his mercy is triggered. He's already predetermined how his compassion is given. He's already predetermined how his grace is shed and placed on the life of an individual. Now watch. God decides who receives Mercy and compassion. Verse number 15, where he talks about, for, Mo, uh, for he saith to Moses, he's referring back to Exodus uh, 33. And I, I want to go there, but I don't know that we have, we have time tonight to go right there. Well, hmm. no, I'm not, I'll just give you the understanding of it, Okay. In Exodus 33, verse 12 through verse 19, uh, that time frame it, it presents a time just following the whole golden calf disaster. And God tells Moses to take the people, after all of that, the Bible says that God sends plagues, even after all that went on, he sent plagues throughout the, the, the people that were left. And the very next, that's the very last verse, uh, of, of of the the chapter thirty two, and then you go into chapter thirty three, and God tells Moses to take the people and to go to the promised land where He wants to bless them. But He tells them, "I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go through the midst of you, though I will be with you, because you are a stiff-necked people." And what God said is, if I stay in the midst of you all the time, I'm liable to kill you. That's what he tells them. And the people are so distraught. The Bible says that, that, that they, just, they, they, they basically lost it. The people just, oh my goodness. They, they mourned and they wept. And, and Moses went and, and dwelt with God. They, Moses went to the tabernacle they had at the time and he went in and dwelt with God. And, and the, the, the uh, Shekinah glory came down and, and God spoke with Moses. And, and God had already said, I'm not going to go in the midst of you lest this stiff-necked people cause me to want to go ahead and just do away with you and start over again. Because I, I know what's going to happen, so therefore, I'm going to be cautious in how I dwell with you, but I won't leave you. I'm going to go with you. I'm just not going to go in the midst of you. And so Moses, talking to the Lord, before getting up and going like God told him to do to the promised land, 
Moses meets with God and Moses needs to clarify and he earnestly expresses the need for certainty in knowing that God will go with them and be with them. And what he, what he says there, in paraphrase, I can't quote it exactly, but, but Moses simply says, if you actually are not going to go with us, not just be around somewhere, but be with us, maybe not in the midst, but you've got to be surrounding us. If you're not going to go with us, don't send us. You promised to go with us. You promised to be with us. So be with us or please don't send us because I can't handle this. I can't take these people. I can't take the situation. I can't take the pressure if you're not going to actually be with me. And that's when God looks at Moses and God tells Moses that he is going to be with him. He is going to lead them. He is going to give them the land of promise that he promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And that's where he tells him, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is declaring that he already has control of the situation, and in the process of it, by the way, think about it. Think about all that we know concerning the children of Israel and what they would do by not going in the first time and rebelling. And then God has to send them 40 years around the wilderness. And many, year after year after year, people died, people died, people died, people died. And some would say, well, God's not being very compassionate to his people. Is the thing, God was compassionate and God was merciful and wanted to give them the land and they refused to go in. And when you refuse and you rebel and you don't obey God, he's already pre-described what disobedience deserves. And disobedience does not deserve his abundant compassion. And disobedience does not deserve his, his, his massive amounts of mercy and grace. Disobedience, God can give mercy regardless. God can give grace regardless. God can show compassion regardless. But in his perfect will, he will determine when an individual has crossed the line and I will no longer give mercy, I will no longer give grace, I will no longer give compassion. Now comes consequence. And he tells him from the very beginning, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is God telling Moses? I am God. I am sovereign. My way is perfect. And if you follow my way, you'll be in perfect peace. If you don't follow my way, I've already decided what will have to be done to those who disobey. And it comes with consequence. So you understand the setting of talking to Moses. You now understand the setting of Paul talking to the Israelites, to the Jews there in the book of Romans. God's not saying he picks and chooses who he likes. God's saying he's already pre-described who it is based on the heart of man, based on the obedience of man. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. He has already pre-described how mercy and compassion and grace are brought about in his perfect will. Does that mean that man can earn? No, it just simply means it all goes back to obedience. Obedience, obedience. What is salvation? Obedience. How is salvation obedience? Because God said, Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What is it when I accept Christ as my Savior? Him and Him alone for salvation. It is obedience to the perfect 
will and plan of God. I obey by faith. Mercy, grace, and compassion are shed upon me. Why? Because God willed it. Because God planned it. Because God designed it and he is sovereign. Well, I don't think that you were a very good person to forgive and give salvation to. Well, it ain't up to you. It's not of my will or of your will, my work or of your work. It's all of his way, his plan, and of his doings. I'm not done on that one yet. Hold on. That was just subpoint one underneath God's sovereignty and his choices. Number two, very quickly. God gives no accounting to man, nor is it fitting that he should concerning his choices. Man tends to think that God has to explain himself to me. If God's going to do that, he better give me a good reason. Well, if God's going to allow that, he better show me that he got a good reason and a good plan to figure it out. God gives no accounting to man of his choices. And it's not fitting that we should expect it either. We are the created ones. We are the creature. He is the creator. God does not only lay out his will and his design and his sovereignty of plan for man as a judge over whether or not man follows, but he lays it out and he operates as one who owns it all. He's not just a judge overseeing somebody else's ownings and somebody else's Right, things that, that they have right to. He is the one who owns it all. All part of creation belongs to God. Man is a part of creation. We are his creatures. We are made by him and for him. And without him was nothing made that was made. He doesn't just oversee it. He owns it. And as the owner, he has the right to claim how it's handled. So God gives no account to man. May I say, Job, uh, mm, mm. Uh, one of these days, I, I might even be Sunday, we'll see. One of these do days, though, we're going to look at uh, two chapters in Job. I was reading today, looking at just Job 40, got, got ooh, 40 verse number 2 is powerful. But you read Job 38 and Job 39. God does nothing but ask Job question after question after question after question after question. Can you do this? Where were you when this happened? Where were you when that happened? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you handle this? Can you split this? Can you do that? Can you create this? Can you, I mean, just boom, boom. I mean, two whole chapters of this, wham, wham, wham. And I guarantee you, Job was there. Lord, I'm not going to say a word. By the time he comes to, to chapter 40, Job, all he can say is, I'm not speaking. 
I'm smart enough to realize I need to keep my mouth shut. But it's powerful when you look at it and say, and, and but here's what it comes to. Shall he that contendeth, Job 40, verse number two, shall he that contendeth with the almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. At that point, Job says, I have nothing to say. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Because who are we as the creature to look at the creator and say, how dare you? Show me what right you had to do this. Show me what right you had to choose that. Show me what right you had to, to, to put me through this and put me through that or, or make this part of my life. Who is man that we should question almighty God of his will? Last two things you see in verse 15 and 16. You also see God has eternally prescribed his chosen way when it comes to mankind and how he deals with man. I cannot leave this alone. 1 Peter 1, I got to read it real quick. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, listen to this. For as much, I kind of got ahead of myself earlier with this, but here it is. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold for your vain conversation receiveth by tradition, uh, um, from your vain conversation receiveth, received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, that gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. The key is in talking of Jesus, in clarifying of Christ himself, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. God already had his plan in mind of how he was going to deal with a sin curse on mankind before it ever happened. God has eternally prescribed his chosen way. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will give compassion, show compassion to whom I will show compassion. He has already pre-laid out the conditions of mercy and compassion. So therefore, his will will be performed. There is no, oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, alteration to the plan. God doesn't do that. Here's the last thing. God omnisciently, and here's what we have to understand about, to a degree, as best we can, about God. God omnisciently understands the heart of all mankind. So when he says, I will show mercy to some and I won't show mercy to the other, he's not, he's not just picking and choosing in a moment. He knows the heart of man. He knows where they've been. He knows where they're going. He knows what they want. He knows what they plan. And he knows whether or not he's even in the mix of what it is that they are going to be seeking after. And as a whole, he deals with the sinful condition of man because 
he knows it with each individual person. So when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, was God unrighteous in what he was doing? No, he knew those two individuals better than they knew themselves. And what he saw in Jacob he loved, what he saw in Esau he hated. And therefore, in his perfect pre-described will of how it would work, Esau was one that God would work with and love and, 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 and deal through. And I, Jacob and Esau was one that God could not abide the life of Esau. He didn't pick and choose just because on a, he had a whim. He omnisciently already knew the hearts and the minds and the directions of the two individuals, and he still does for all mankind. Proverbs 24, verse number 12 says, If thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? What is that rendering according to his works? I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. God knows what each individual can be given or should be given according to his perfect will. And what his perfect will is will be performed according to what has already been preset from the foundation. Now, we're dealing with not just life. We're dealing with eternal life. That's what Paul's dealing with, eternal life. Last thought, I'm done. Whew, got to be done. Wow. Take all of this, and you ready for, for a, a really, really good, like, that's good moment? Here we go. Applying this general rule of what we've looked at concerning the sovereignty of God, applying this general rule to a particular case that Paul has before him, we can clearly see that the reason why there are unworthy and undeserving Gentiles being called and grafted into the church while the greatest part of the Jews are left to perish in unbelief is not because those Gentiles were better deserving or worthy of such favor, but all because of God's unmerited grace according to his perfect will. He did not choose Gentiles over Jew. He chose the way in which man would receive forgiveness. And his will was already set as to how it would be performed. And when the Jew rejects Christ, God rejects the Jew. When the Gentile accepts Christ, God accepts the Gentile according to his perfect will. The Gentiles did neither will it nor run for it for they sat in darkness. Matthew 4.16 says, The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the regions and shadow, the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. The Gentile didn't seek for that which they didn't even know they needed. The Gentile didn't work for that which they didn't even know they needed. They were sitting in darkness. And God said, But I have a plan.
And for him who will accept my way, I will show mercy and I will show compassion. And to him who will reject me and my will and my way, I will not show mercy and I will not show compassion. Is there unrighteousness then in God because he accepts one and rejects another? Because he shows mercy to one and shows no mercy to the next? Because he shows compassion to one and no compassion to the other? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. There is the perfect pre-described will of God of how every man, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, how every man can receive the mercy, grace, and compassion of a holy God unto forgiveness of sins. That's what Paul's dealing with. There's a lot packed in three verses, isn't there? May I say, again, that's why so many times people misinterpret and misunderstand Scripture like this because they just scratch the surface, move on and say, ah, it's just too hard to understand. I think he's just trying to say that God picks and chooses who he likes. Get down to the meat of it. Get down and dig in and realize, no, Paul's talking about salvation. Paul's talking to a people who trust in their heritage for salvation. And Paul's trying to qualify and let them know the Gentiles are accepted not because they're better. It's because they accept Christ, which was God's will and God's way. And according to God's sovereignty, his will has already been set as to how you receive forgiveness, mercy, and compassion. Powerful when you understand what's really going on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for tonight.